So the topic of this evening's talk is escape from samsara. And the topic is about who is wandering in samsara. This is a picture of a Tibetan tanka, which is a painting on cloth, which is used as a teaching tool for uh, teaching about some aspect of the Buddhist teaching. And in the Tibetan tradition, some tankas are available for public devotional um, purposes, but a lot of tankas are hidden or covered and only available for uh, those who have been prepared to receive that teaching. And I believe that this is one that is hidden and covered uh, most of the time, but since you're all prepared, <laughs> it is the teaching, or I should say contained within this is the teaching on the law of karma and the law of dependent origination and many other teachings of the Buddha. Saira Upandita was asked the question, if there is no self, who is wandering in samsara? And he said, that is a good question. <laughs> but if you think about it too much, it will give you a big headache. <laughs> So, <laughs> to answer the question, we must understand that there are two perspectives of the one reality. And the two perspectives are oftentimes referred to as the two truths, or the, two conven the conventional and the experiential uh, reality. Nagarjuna wrote this about the teachings of the Buddha. He says, the Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on convention, you cannot disclose the sublime. And without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. So, let me try to explain. This is a picture of this Tibetan tanka, which is a painting of samsara. All of samsara in a picture. And what that means is, it is a picture of the terrain of the mind. Some people want to understand it as the different planes of existence, the different 31 planes of existence, or the six realms of existence. But in all of those existences, in all of those realms, it is the mind that is experiencing. 
So we could say samsara is the terrain of the mind. It is said that when the Tibetan king at the time that this painting was done, when he was shown this painting and it was pointed out to him, he immediately understood the teaching of this wheel of samsara and the escape from it and he immediately became enlightened. So pay attention, <laughs> just in case. Now you remember that samsara is called the wheel of continued existence or repeated existence. It's the cyclic existence that just life after life or birth after birth or mind moment after mind moment looking for happiness and never seeming to find it. So in this painting we have a large circle with a lot of different ideographs within it. But the large circle is being held in the grip of this fierce being whose face and hands you can see at the top of the circle and whose feet you can see at the bottom of the circle that's holding in its grip. And this fierce being is Mara or Yama in the Tibetan tradition, who is the Lord of Death. Meaning what takes place in this circle is held in the grip of birth and death. Outside of this circle or outside of the grip of Mara in the upper right hand corner is the Buddha pointing to an orb of light and a tablet on which is carved an admonition. It is said that the Lord of Death is constantly eating at us. There's five, uh, there's five different poisons depicted in the five skulls at the top of the, at the crown of the head. And these poisons are ignorance, attachment, hatred, arrogance, and jealousy. That which keeps us looking and grasping and reaching for happiness. The Buddha is pointing to this orb which, is, which represents Nibbana and the wholesome karmic actions of beings. And the tablet, on the tablet is carved an admonition that says, take this up, meaning the teachings of the Buddha, and give that up, meaning samsara. Take this up and give that up enter the Buddha's teaching like an elephant in the lotus pond. Destroy the forces of the Lord of Death. One who mindfully engages in this way of discipline will leave the wheel of birth behind and bring suffering to an end. So the Buddha is pointing to liberation, not just a better lifestyle or a better life or a heavenly-like existence. He's pointing to release from the cycle of birth and death, all forms of mm -hmm, taking form in any of these realms. And this 
admonition by the Buddha is an encouragement and an instruction and an invitation to practice renunciation. Take this up, the teachings of the Buddha. Give that up. All of samsara. Letting go of all of samsara through the various practices of renunciation. And you'll remember from the evening's reading that renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending sufferings of samsara, the vicious cycle of conditioned existence. With it comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the <coughs> endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. So says Dil Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. So, let's look at samsara because that's where we find ourselves. The innermost circle, the smallest one, has a picture of three animals. Now you need to remember that this painting was done in medieval Tibet, a very agrarian society, and so the symbols that they have to represent different elements of the mind are very agrarian. And the three symbols are a snake, a chicken, and a pig, representing the three roots of unwholesomeness, greed, hatred, and delusion. So, which is which? Well, the snake probably we would guess, represents aversion. The chicken and the pig, well, I've always thought that the chicken is pretty, <laughs> pretty stupid. <laughs> Maybe representing delusion. And the pig, endlessly consuming, I always thought would represent desire. But the Tibetans have a different understanding, that the chicken represents desire and the pig represents delusion. So be it. If we, of 21st century Western lifestyle, were to pick three icons in the center of our samsaric existence to represent greed, hatred, and delusion, we might pick a symbol of Wall Street for <laughs> Greed, a picture of the mushroom cloud of an atomic bomb for aversion. And is there any good symbol for delusion or any better symbol for delusion than a TV? <laughs> okay. So you get, you see where the Tibetans are coming from, just to remind us, to remind them and we to remind ourselves <coughs> that. The roots of all of samsaric wandering is greed, hatred, and delusion. The immediate subsequent circle around that is divided into half, the dark half and the light half. The dark half shows beings being led by a demon downward. The light half shows 
humans being led by a pious or pious humans being led by a renunciate towards a heavenly being or deity. And it shows the basic directions that we can go into the dark, into the light, heading upward or heading downward. The next circle of conditions is five pentads. One, two, three, four, five. Five pentads. In the these pentads represent the six realms of beings. And we might say they're the six major arenas of the mind, mental terrain. And we could also understand them as being representative of different personality types. Those with certain personality types gravitate more to the behaviors or the experiences depicted in those realms. So, in the lowest pentad between 4 and 7 o'clock, let's say, is the hell realm. Now, hell realm is very unpleasant. It is um, depicted by beings frozen in ice or living in snow fields. And we can understand this as the mind feeling isolated, cold, shut out, uh, contracted, and just really withdrawn within itself. A hell of sorts that we're all, we're all familiar with. It also shows beings with a lot of flames around them, and maybe our more typical image of hell, hell beings, or the mind in hell, a hellish state, when we're just consumed with rage or anger or uh, the kind of burning up states of mind that we all also are familiar with. But it also shows, in the upper left piece, it shows someone impaled on a plant or a tree that is like all spikes. And there's reputed to be hell realms where all the plants have spikes on them, or real, yeah, spikes, so that if you climb up, the spikes are pointing down, and when you want to climb down, the spikes are pointing up, and you just keep getting pricked and, and stabbed and, and just kind of really unpleasant mental state, much like being attacked, you know, uh, mentally by uh, people throwing barbs at you or poking at you or criticizing you, it's just real hellish state of mind. It also shows, uh, not so clearly here, but there are um, uh, other hell realms or other states of mind which are very cutting and slicing and everything there is just big blades that are always spinning through the air and slicing and cutting people. So, I mean, I don't want to go into all the details, but uh, they're available if you want to discover it. But we know what having a mind that feels like it's being uh, slashed at, sliced at, cut up by the speech and behavior of others, being cut out and cut in, uh, just being uh, tormented. When the mind is tormented in that way, 
you know, it's a really uh, a hellish state of mind. There's the hot hell, the cold hell, the lacerating hell, and the piercing hells. The human psychology uh, that most experiences hellish states of mind is when our mind or the mind is filled with anger and aggression, whether it's passive or aggressive. And it is said that our minds are thrown into a hellish place as a result of anger, hatred, aggression, uh, really putting, putting, uh, being pretty brutal actually. So we don't have to imagine that these are other, other realms than our own mind you know, or when we come in contact with these states of mind. We know what hell beings experience. In the pentad to the right of that, between two and four o'clock, is what is called the hungry ghost realm. And here you'll see the beings that have big bellies and long, thin necks. And they are consumed with insatiable hunger. And no matter how much they get to eat and drink, they can't get enough to feel full and satisfied. Well, clearly this is the state of mind when we are caught in greed or attachment or seeing what we want but being unable to get it. And it is said that beings here see all of the things around them that could satisfy them, whether it's company with others or food or drinks or warmth or shelter or nice clothes, they see all of these things. But these beings are very pitiful. It's as if they're living in rags on the streets. They're like the, the street people that really want, uh, that, that would want the most luxurious lifestyle but are unable to get it. And these um, beings, and, or our mind, is born in such a condition uh, when we lack generosity and we're very stingy with our possessions, unable to share, and so we, we're the ones living in the, in the, in the big house and we, we don't care about those who might need, want, uh, or, or aspire to what we have. So the human psychology is one of not being able to get enough of whatever it is you want and feeling perpetually unfulfilled and alone. And it is manifested as endless, unreachable fantasies of how to get what you want. Sound familiar? <laughs> where the fixation and obsession, where fixation and obsession on getting and having, consuming, becomes one's whole identity. We know this in our own experience of obsessive, compulsive, addictive uh, behavior, both within ourselves and in others. And it's um, 
these beings are considered really very pitiful because they don't see the way out of their condition and they're powerless to do anything about it. Huh. Not an unfamiliar mental state. Luckily, it's just passing through. On the opposite side of the circle of that, between 7 and 10 o'clock, is the animal realm, which we see with our human eyes all around us. And while we often tend to have a very romantic view of the animal realm, especially our pets, but often to uh, the, the more benign, little cuddly, furry, fuzzy types like the local raccoons and the nice little deer. But actually, the animal realm is one of extreme fear and where there's a lot of uh, fear of being eaten and uh, a constant desire or needing to kill, mostly, in order to survive. So as good as it gets, it's still pretty, pretty brutal in the animal realm. It's said that animals, as smart as they are, still cannot see a way out of their uh, conditioning, cannot understand how to escape the instinctual habits of mind which they act out. It's said that animals engage in three activities. They eat, they sleep, and they copulate. So, when we're in our animal-minded states of mind, that's what we're most interested in. Eating, sleeping, and copulating. <laughs> None of us here. <laughs> when we too are caught in what seems like our instinctual or emotionally instinctual reactivity or in survival instinct, we act out of deeply conditioned habits without much reflective wisdom analysis and we tend towards habit, uh, sticking to habitual ways where our behavior is often regimented and routinized because it's familiar and we have a limited set of responses and we're very stubborn when forced to, through conditions, to change. Often being overly serious and lacking in humor, easily threatened with the unknown. With a tendency to not look for a better way. There's a tendency to play deaf and play dumb and this we experience in our basic denial of what's going on within us. So sometimes we as humans uh, kind of succumb to or resort to uh, kind of the animal instinctual uh, part of the mind or behavior of the mind. 
and we know what that's like, the kind of suffering. You can see that kind of suffering is different than the suffering of hellish mind, and it's different than the suffering of the uh, hungry ghost mind. You can see that it's different, but they're still suffering. And beings are born and live and pass away in those realms, just as our mind takes up a thought of, or a fantasy of, or a lifestyle of these states of mind for varying lengths of time. Up in the upper right-hand quadrant, between 12 and 2 o'clock, is the human realm. Here we see ourselves engaged in all the usual human activities, domestic activities in the bottom, uh, commercial activities, agrarian or agricultural activities, uh, even um, monastic activities at the top or spiritual activities at the top. And to the left, we see uh, some sort of, I'm not sure what, either monks or uh, devotional, uh, devotional monks, uh, humans devoted to monks. And here you can see that these beings are not totally preoccupied with suffering experiences. But there is enough pain in the human realm to motivate someone to look deeper, to look for a way to be free of that pain. The human psychology is inherently comparative and competitive. And if you've noticed comparing mind, you know how relentless and shameless it can be. And the mind is always looking for how to get an advantage in every situation. <laughs> Where the effort in the human realm is endless pursuit to maximize pleasure by discriminating the subtleties of pleasure that can be obtained in different activities and behavior. Hope that we'll succeed and fear that we won't are the central uh, emotional states of mind in the human realm, where happiness is always fragile and in danger of disintegrating because, as we know, conditions change. When we speak of the pleasures in the human realm, there are, of course, physical pleasures, emotional pleasures, social pleasures, intellectual pleasures, and even spiritual pleasure, which we seek for some sense of, or some brief experience of pleasure, hoping it turns to happiness. Where there is a tremendous amount of thinking, because we're constantly scheming and strategizing how to get what we want, or how to get more pleasure and less unpleasure. Trungpa Rinpoche says, in the human realm, you are stuck in an absolute traffic jam of discursive thoughts. It's extremely busy, there's no end to it. And we don't have to look very far to confirm that. However, inherent in the process of scheming and strategizing and thinking and being consumed with the fantasy of seeking, acquiring, and enjoying pleasure, there is um, just a great deal of dissatisfaction with the way things are, or 
a subtler kind of suffering, but suffering nevertheless. <clears throat> when we approach the human realm with the instinctual kind of emotional uh, samsaric way of seeking happiness, uh, it's very painful. And when we're aware of it, a little bit more aware of it, it's even more so. And so the, the effect of hearing the Buddha's teachings and beginning to practice it, often his first experience is even more awareness of the suffering that we're actually feeling. So, good luck. In the fifth pentad to the uh, upper left, between 10 and 12 o'clock, this is the heavenly realms. Now we've seen the, we've seen the kind of suffering in the hell realms, the animal realms, the ghost realms, the human realm. In the heavenly realm, beings are born there because of just being good beings, being kind and generous, but they don't have so much wisdom. The heavenly realm is divided into two halves. The lower heavenly beings on the left hand, lower left, and the higher heavenly beings on the upper right. The lower heavenly beings are the jealous gods. It's a realm of jealous gods who are very ambitious, full of envy, quarreling and fighting, trying to get what the superior beings have all the time. Now they're all powerful beings, they're all magnificent beings, but the lesser beings have slightly less merit, so they're not as powerful as the upper beings. So they say in the, in the lower heavenly realms, these beings see others who have bigger celestial mansions or brighter auras or more uh, of a retinue. And so they feel extremely jealous and envious and they want to get. And so they're always making war on those superior beings trying to get what they have. Of course, in the human psychology or the human realm, the psychology is one of ambition, achievement, jealousy, and paranoia. Because what you get, others may want, and you have to defend yourself. Again, Trungpa Rinpoche says of the jealous gods, his or her version of heaven may be that the acquisition of extraordinary wealth, power, or fame is the way to happiness, where one is preoccupied with achievement through competition and always trying to be better than everyone else. However, that makes him forever insecure and anxious, struggling to control the territory they have acquired and overcoming all threats to its loss. <coughs> it said that the jealous gods, their occupation, their entertainment, their, their activities with their discretionary time is to function within the realm of intrigue, always scheming and strategizing and trying to get advantage. And uh, Trungpa Rinpoche again says, it's as if one were born, raised, and died as a diplomat or politician. 
<laughs> where intrigue and relationship are one's lifestyle and one's whole livelihood. Well, to the extent that you find that attractive and that's your vehicle for uh, manifesting in the world, you know what that's like. It's just like, just like it shows. That's what it's like. However, those who succeed, or those who have greater power, more merit, are born in the Brahma realms, or the upper, human, upper, upper heavenly realms. And here, because of more merit, they've been more kind, more generous, more better sila. Uh, they may have practiced uh, the, the concentration practices, so they've got a lot of power. They're bigger, they're more beautiful, they have enormous power. And it's said that those beings who are born there, merely by thinking of a desire, it is satisfied. You have a desire, boom, instantly satisfied. So the tremendous power is very intoxicating. So it's like you know, those who have a tremendous amount of money and power and position or recognition in the human realm can, can often buy whatever they want, satisfy all their desires, but still not be happy. The liability or the suffering in this realm, it, because of their power and the length of their life, they're intoxicated and they have no interest to hear the Dharma. It's very hard to even have a thought that you'd like to hear the Dharma when you're so powerful and so intoxicated. And the state of mind here is characterized by intoxication and pride. Now pride, we don't understand, we often don't understand that as being really painful suffering. But when you understand how you get pride and the threat to your pride, in these realms, or when you have that, then you, you understand that, oh, this is a form of suffering, a mind that is dependent on pride for its happiness, or threatened with loss of pride and, and suffering through that. In the human realm, of course, attaining great wealth, power, fame, through industry, politics, or any other um, means, including attaining jhanas, developing a very concentrated mind will get you kind of accessing these states of mind where you have tremendous power intoxicated with pride. Hmm. What is not shown in these uh, pictures is that everything that goes on here <coughs> is impermanent. It's, it's born in the mind, it lasts for a while, and it passes away. Whether we understand it as a human is born, lives out a life, pursuing whatever it is they want, and then dies, or whether you understand it as your own mind. We're all familiar with how many worlds we live in, in a single sitting. We sit down, and the mind comes up with a fantasy, Boop. And we live out that fantasy, seeking happiness in some ways, planning this, imagining that, remembering something else, scheming, strategizing. You know, and, 
eventually mindfulness saves us from actually having to live it out it plops us back into this reality and it isn't hardly but a split second or two later and we're off in another one and another one and another one we have been through all these realms today kind of looking and seeking and pursuing happiness they're all impermanent whatever experience, whatever happiness, whatever pleasure you find in any of these realms, it's always impermanent. Leaving one, again, empty and unsatisfied. So, this is samsara. This is, this is the problem. No matter where you can imagine going, no matter what mind state you can imagine acquiring through whatever efforts or lack of efforts you can make. It doesn't last. It has its own form of suffering kind of accompanying it. And it will leave on its own in its own time, leaving you feeling empty and hungry or insatiably craving something else. So how does this happen? Well, the outer circle of this mandala or this painting shows 12 icons which depict the 12 links of the teaching of dependent origination. This is a very elaborate, uh, very refined teaching of the Buddha that explains in, well, in this case, pictures, but in so many words, how karma unfolds from acting karmically, experiencing the results, and as a result of the results, or responding or reacting to the results, creating fresh karma that plants seeds, that gives future results, and when those future results are experienced, we create new karma in response or reaction to them, planting seeds, which gives rise to even further future results. And this cycle just goes on and on. The actions that we take, whether they're reactions based on habit or they're actions based on presence of mind, are karma. And karma gives its result in samsara, in one of these realms, or in one of these states of mind. So whatever it is that we do, seeking self-aggrandizement or seeking our own happiness, is bound to return to us in the experience of one of these states of mind. So I want to go through these 12 links just to show you how the law of karma unfolds through cause and effect moment by moment or lifetime by lifetime if you want to understand it that way without there being anyone there to whom it is happening. Samsara means flowing on faring on or moving on. It means to run endlessly and inevitably. 
from one moment to the next. Where we find ourselves now is no accident. And what we do with now is the pointer to where we'll find ourselves later. <clears throat> or as my early Dharma teacher, Jerry Garcia, put it, <clears throat> I can tell your future, just look what's in your hand. Whatever it is we're doing is planting the seeds of what we'll reap in the future. The wheel is turning, this wheel of life, the wheel is turning and you can't slow it down. You can't let go and you can't hold on. You can't go back and you can't stand still. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. <laughs> now, if that song gets into your head, you'll be listening for a few days. <clears throat> These 12 links are divided into three cycles. There's the cycle of the past giving rise to the present and the present giving rise to the future. So we could say ignorance in the past and karmic actions in the past give rise to how we experience the present. How we respond or react to the present gives rise to how the future will be experienced. <clears throat> the Buddha, in coming to understand the wheel of samsara, the cyclic existence, said that no first beginning of craving for becoming could be found. And then he asked, which is greater, the tears you have shed while transmigrating and wandering this long time? crying and weeping from being joined what is displeasing and from being separated from what is pleasing. Which is greater? The tears that you personally have shed or the waters of the four great oceans? He answered his own questions by saying the tears that each one of us have shed and explained why is that? From an inconstruable beginning, beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on long enough to become disenchanted with all conditioned things, enough to become dispassionate, enough to be released. So let's look at this long wandering that has gone on that we seem to be heir to but in which we cannot find ourselves. The first link at one o'clock is a link of a blind person. It's a picture of a blind person depicting ignorance. This is taking place in the past. Ignorance or delusion, not seeing things correctly, seeing permanent security where there isn't any, seeing satisfaction where there really isn't, seeing things as being uh, all about me, when it also really isn't. It is said that this kind of illusion, this kind of delusion is multiple layers thick. And so it takes repeated uh, presence of mind over and over again to work our way down through the layers of confusion, the layers of delusion. 
Ignorance is a very obstinate tendency of the mind, one of the last fetters to be uprooted from the mind in the path of practice. What is it that beings are ignorant of? Primarily, the Four Noble Truths. Not understanding the First Noble Truth of Dukkha, looking for happiness in things which are unstable or oppressive, just can't offer it. Second Noble Truth, ignorant of the fact that it is craving itself that is the source or the cause of this dukkha, often assuming or believing that if I could just get what I want, then I'll be happy. This kind of ignorance propels beings in this endless search. Not understanding or being ignorant of the third noble truth, where one believes that suffering or the end of suffering can be found in some sensual, sensual indulgence or some heavenly realm or some, uh, some kind of paradise elsewhere without understanding that paradise elsewhere is also in samsara. Or not understanding, being ignorant of the fourth noble truth, which is the path to the end of suffering, and believing that this end of suffering that, they, that we wish uh, will either happen automatically or someone will just grant us relief, just you know, kind of the supreme being that can go poof, fixed off the wheel, or that I'm already happy enough and don't have to look any further. Or if I'm just a good person, that will be good enough. While all of these are, or some of these are, no, are, are, are good, they're not relief. They're not this permanent relief from the end of suffering, the, the scope and the extent of suffering that awaits us uh, in samsaric wandering. So it's this kind of ignorance that conditions our intentions to seek the kind of happiness, the kind of pleasure that we want. The second link is a picture of a potter. And it's meant to depict karmic actions, primarily motivated by intention. A potter makes endless little cups, endless little bowls, endless little plates to hold, to contain, well, intention. So our minds are always proliferating intentions to act, to speak, to behave, to do, to seek, to get, to acquire what we think erroneously will bring us happiness. So this ignorance, the first link, conditions the intention to seek happiness or to seek pleasure, the second link. Now, we know that intentions can be wholesome. We can practice generosity, loving kindness, practice sila, develop deep concentration. It can be unwholesome. It can be rooted in greed, hatred, delusion. Or we can even practice meditation and obtain deep states of tranquility. These are all mundane or samsaric activities, samsaric desires, if you will. 
and these actions constitute the wheel of karma, ignorance conditioning actions, which are from the past, which will give rise or do give rise to present moment experience. Links three, four, five, six, and seven. So the present moment is depicted by one, two, three, four, five links. Let me explain these. The present moment appears with a body and mind, a consciousness, sense doors, sense objects, contact, and feeling. Link number three is consciousness. It is the basic knowing capacity of the mind. Without consciousness, there's no life. A body without consciousness is a corpse. Doesn't know anything. So we could say that consciousness, the foundation of life, is a condition for the appearance of a body. It is supported by, or the body is supported by consciousness. When consciousness leaves, the body dies. So, link number three shows a monkey reaching through a window or a door into a building. And it is meant to depict the consciousness that is linked from the past karmic act to the present karmic result. Whenever that is, there's that linkage, that cause-effect linkage from past karmic action to present karmic result. When consciousness arises, it is accompanied by nama rupa, or physicality and mentality, depicted in link four as two beings being rowed across the stream in a boat. Every moment that we experience in the present has both a physical and a mental element. We don't, get, we don't come with just one. We have both, and they appear all the time, or they appear uh, repeatedly together. <clears throat> With the arising of Nama Rupa, or mentality, materiality, in link four, there arises the sense doors depicted in link number five as it should be a building with six openings, a door and five windows, or six openings. And these six openings are meant to be the sense doors, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, because it is through the sense doors that access to the mind is gained. Without the sense doors, you don't get to the mind. So it's through these sense doors that the mind is contacted. That's in link five. Yes. It's not the actual eye. It's not the actual ear. It's the sensitivity of the eye that sees, the sensitivity of the ear that hears, etc. In link six, we see two lovers embracing. This is 
meant to depict contact. When there is contact with any of the sense doors, meaning a sense object, like a sound, comes in contact with a sense door, the ear in this case, giving rise to the sense consciousness, hearing. When those three come together, door, object, and consciousness, there's a spark of ignition which appears as hearing or seeing or feeling or tasting or smelling or cognizing, thinking something. This is a conditioned experience if sense doors are present. If you have eyes that function, you'll see. If you have ears that function, you'll hear. If you have a body, you'll feel. If you have a mind, you'll think. It's not a matter of, I don't want to, or we can choose to. It happens. <clears throat> and we're all well aware of that, that we can't shut off uh, the body from feeling sensations or the eyes from seeing images. Uh, we can close our eyes, but we still have a vast storehouse of images that have been previously seen to kind of keep us entertained. And the same with sounds and uh, all, all kinds of thoughts and ideas in the mind. So these, this contact is occurring continuously. The sense doors are working continuously. Contact is continuous, continuous con is experiencing or being experienced continuously. And when there is contact between object, door, and consciousness, there is bound to be a feeling, link number seven, which for medieval Tibetan reasons was chosen to be depicted as someone with a thorn in their eye. Well, we get the idea, feeling, it's yeah, okay, but I'm not sure how we would depict feeling differently, but I'm hoping that one of you can come up with a better idea. Nevertheless, if there is sense contact, there will be feeling. This is the Vedana or the feeling aggregate. The body and mind are all five aggregates. In these five links are all five aggregates. The feelings that we experience, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, mental and physical, are incessant. They just, they just happen. They happen as a result of past karmic action. Whatever we experience in the mind, as pleasant or unpleasant, conditioned by past karmic action. Of course, there's an, there's an immediate sense object that arises to be the stimulus for it, but how we experience it is conditioned by past karma. When feeling arises, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, if it is unpleasant, the habit or the conditioned response is aversion. If it is pleasant, the conditioned response is attachment. If it is neutral, the conditioned response is ignorance or delusion. This is depicted in link number eight as a man having a cup of tea or trying to satisfy thirst or tanha, craving, desire, because 
when feeling arises, we try to satisfy it, get away from it if it's unpleasant, more of it if it's pleasant, and we're oblivious of it often if it's neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. When craving arises in link seven, it conditions grasping, link eight, which shows a monkey in a tree grabbing a fruit because we're not satisfied with just wanting more pleasure or wanting to get away from aversion. We got to do something about it. You know, write a note. <laughs> Whatever it is we do, we grab something. And here on retreat, of course, we're very sophisticated. We write a note. But nevertheless, it's still grabbing a pen <laughs> and grabbing something with the mind. We don't just have the feeling. We do something with it. We create in the mind a strategy for acquiring what it is that we want. And so we act it out. This is, again, karmic act. In this acting on craving, which is aversion and desire, acting on aversion and desire, craving, which is a karmic act sure to give rise, or let's say, it gives rise to the idea of me enjoying what it is I've grasped. So we create this idea in our mind, I want more of this or I want to get away from that. And we imagine ourselves becoming that way. Well, link number seven, eight, nine, ten shows a pregnant woman with the being that is becoming within her. Well, all of our karmic scheming, strategizing, da 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 is planting seeds of becoming what we imagine will satisfy our desire or aversion, and it is uh, depicted in this link with the pregnant woman. If we have gotten that far, creating the karma, imagining how we want to be in the future, taken the action by grasping and fueling this becoming, we will surely give birth in the future to a new being, a new state of mind, depicted in link 11 as a woman giving birth. This is our new fantasy, our new life, our new experience, another present moment conditioned by the past, just inevitably going on due to cause and effect. Each link is the cause for the subsequent one, which is the effect. That then becomes the cause for its subsequent one, the effect. Cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. Going around endlessly without there being anyone there. Whatever is born is surely going to live, grow old, get sick, and die. Depicted in link number 12 as, I believe, uh, a man or a being carrying a burden, at least a burden, a being, a burdensome being on their back. Uh, I'm not sure if that's carrying themselves or a corpse or, or what it is, but you can see there is this burden to carry. Once born, we carry old age, sickness, and death uh, through that life, whether it's a fantasy for five minutes while sitting or it's a whole lifetime in a human realm or any other realm. Inevitably, 
it comes to an end. When it ends, of course, there's this emptiness for a moment, and there's another karmic result arising somewhere, giving rise to another birth of another moment, the birth of another life, the birth of another fantasy. How long does how long is it between fantasies in the mind? You know, we can we can get an idea. You know, we we see one fantasy. Oh, finally. Back to the breath. There we are, off in another one. Sometimes it is just that quick where something comes to an end. We may be present for a few seconds in this life as a human practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. Yay, good. And then another karmic result arises in another fantasy. And we live that out for a minute or two or five and it comes to an end. And in every one of those, there's this, these 12 links of being born with body-mind feelings, sense contact, giving rise to more craving, more feeling, giving rise to more craving, grasping, becoming another birth, another death, another birth, another death, moment after moment. This life, next life, many lives, this plane, next plane, other planes, it just keeps going. This, this is samsara looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Hmm? But the Buddha said, take this up, the Noble Eightfold Path. Give that up, samsaric wandering. And if you do, you can escape the Lord of Death. Why? Because developing the Eightfold Path Right speech, right action, right livelihood, right view, right thought, right mind, right energy, right mindfulness, right concentration. When we develop though any of those or all of those or as we're developing them, we're not creating karma. It is the karma that leads to the end of karma. It is the karma that leads to off the wheel, no longer cycling. How does it happen that practicing any or all of the Eightfold Path Factors breaks the linkage of these 12 links of cause and effect. Well, it's clear that our practice today didn't do anything to our past ignorant and karmic actions. They're still fully functional. Neither did it do anything, really, to the arising moment after moment of the present moment. Consciousness, mind-body, sense doors, sense contact, and feeling. These are given results of past karmic actions. We experience them all day long. Mind-body, sense contact, feeling. To the extent that we were not mindful, craving, grasping, becoming was the result of pleasant and unpleasant feeling. To the extent that we were mindful, recognizing the feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, recognizing the feeling of any experience and not following our habitual conditioning aversion to unpleasant, 
desire for pleasant, delusion for <coughs> neutral. If we are aware of the feeling, the link between feeling and craving is broken. It doesn't go. There's no conditioning. If you're aware of the feeling, it's not conditioning craving. And so in that, in that moment, the chain of causality is broken. If we continue to do that, if we continue with our practice, noticing feelings and how they manifest, then we don't plant seeds of future karm, or karmic act. We don't perform karmic actions planting seeds for future results. The link between, or the, the conditioning between link seven and eight is the place where all Dharma practice takes place. Awareness breaks the link. Awareness is preventing the conditioning from feeling to craving, because we see it. Now, when I say feeling, it can be any of these present moment, it can be an experience of the body, an experience of the mind, experience of the sense doors, it can be contact with sense object, it can be knowing the feeling of any of those. Any one of those serves to break the link or the conditioning of craving. Our work as yogis is to notice this. And we do this by developing the eight factors of the noble path. Right view, right thought, right effort, right mindfulness, right understanding, from which, uh, right view, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, from which come right speech, right action, and in time, right livelihood by practicing the Buddha's path, Noble Eightfold Path, we escape from samsara. Or we say, there is escape from samsara. We can't say it's us, but there is the end of suffering. What we normally call the mind is the deluded mind a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, and unless they are immediately overpowered with the proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprint until and unless we practice the Eightfold Path. This is the process of, or the practice of deconditioning habit, making the habitual known, or making the unconscious, or what we're unaware of, making it known, accepting the way things are, and disentangling our sense of self from karmic actions giving rise to future samsaric, inevitably painful results. So,
this wheel is turning and you can't slow it down you can't let go and you can't hold on you can't go back and you can't stand still if the thunder don't get you then the lightning will so let's sit for a moment let the words quiet down thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate